Hello and welcome to On the Mathematical Frontline, the first episode of a special series of the PLUS podcast. My name is Rachel Thomas. Over the last year, we've done a lot of reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. We've looked at the now famous R number, at growth rates, and we've explored the mathematical models that have and sometimes haven't informed policy decisions about lockdowns and school closures and social distancing and all those other measures we've now sadly learned to live with. Behind those mathematical models, there are of course people, the mathematicians who make the models, the people who are grappling with the unprecedented challenge of coming to grips with a live pandemic unfolding in front of their eyes. The Mathematical Frontline podcast is about those people, the math they do, how they go about it, and the impact it has on their personal lives as well as the lives of everybody else living through the pandemic. The first person we speak to in this new series is Julia Gogg. Julia has been a friend of PLUS since long before the pandemic. She is Professor of Mathematical Biology at the Department of Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge, which is also the home of PLUS. Julia is a participant of SAGE and a member of the epidemic modelling group SPIM. And Julia is also a founding member of the Juniper Modelling Consortium, which you'll hear more about later on in the podcast. We're hugely proud to announce that we're collaborating with Juniper to bring their important work on COVID-19 to as wide an audience as possible. Over the last year, Julia's work has been entirely devoted to fighting the pandemic. But my colleague Marianne Freiberger started off her interview by asking Julia what she did before the pandemic struck. And when Julia says recent here, she means recently before the pandemic. My research area is maths of infectious disease and particularly influenza. And if you look at recent things we've been doing, looking at things like the um, spatial dynamics of the 2009 pandemic, particularly in the US. And uh, of course, recently we had the BBC Pandemic Project, which is where we were working with um, making a documentary, but also at the same time, It was a huge citizen science experiment where we were collecting data um, to understand better how people really move and mix in the UK in current times. And the point of that was to get us better set up to make more realistic, um, better parameterised models for pandemic spread for some hypothetical pandemic, hopefully in the long distance future at that time, we were hoping. Yeah, so it it didn't turn out to be a long distant future. Can you just say a little bit more about that, about the BBC project? So as I remember, people were asked to basically trace their contacts on an app, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. So um, the programme was about the maths and the science behind pandemics. Um, and as part of that, we had an app which was downloaded and used by a lot of people and you, you do it over a 24-hour period and at the start of it you put in um, some basic information about yourself so your your age uh, your working status etc number of people you live with um, and then it uses the phone gps to record roughly where you are once per hour for the next 24 hours and it's not super creepy it's just down to a one kilometer square grid just to get a sense of how far people are actually moving from home or from where they started at least And then the other key bit was at the end of 24 hours, 
it asked for contacts. It's like, can you tell us about the people you've been in contact with? I exchanged at least three words with in the last 24 hours. So give an estimate of their age and say something about the context. Was it at home? Was it at school? Was it something else? And that gives you a sort of a matrix of the way people mix with each other by age and by, by situation. Mm. So that it's amazing. It's amazing how familiar we are with these ideas now of uh, keeping track of contacts and movements. And back then, it, I remember reporting on the BBC project mm. and it didn't feel familiar at all. It just felt a bit like, oh, that's strange. Like I have to write down my contacts. How weird. So it's really changed. So then obviously pandemic hit about a, well nearly a year ago now. Yes. So how did you then became involved in the effort to fight it? Well, actually, before the pandemic hit, after the BBC programme, because we were making these large pandemic models, um, our work was picked up by a group called Spy M, which I think is, is something more widely known about now than it was a year ago, which is um, one of the groups that fits into the Department of Health and uh, looks at pandemic modelling. So it's, it's the maths behind the pandemic modelling. I'd been a, approached to uh, ask to to join that and initially I hesitated because I thought I'm really backroom theoretician you know I make the models the frameworks so I look at things uh, years after they happen and try and say is there something more about pandemics we should understand I don't think of I didn't think of myself as someone who'd get involved in a real-time response and SPYM was all about gearing up for having the modeling groups at the ready in the case of a pandemic so initially I said no and um no, I'm going to disclose this. The now current, um, the chair of SPIM, Graham Medley, approached and said, well, Julia, if there was a pandemic, wouldn't you actually want to be involved in helping? Oh, hang on. No, you're right. <laughs> I do. So um, I joined SPIM and um, outside of a pandemic, it was not a big commitment, right? So it's just meeting occasionally, looking at what models are available and thinking about... Uh, <laughs> what seemed like a side issue then, but of course, absolute core issue of um, the data. So in the case of a pandemic, what data flows would we need in order to be able to answer the questions that will be asked? Uh, and thinking about getting that set up right for a hypothetical pandemic in the future. Mm, and, and of course, it all changed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the things that you thought you needed to have set up, for example, in terms of data flows, did they turn out to be the things that you did actually need? Or was it all different than you had imagined? Uh, certainly for me, it was utterly different to how I imagined things would be. I don't think I'd really thought through the detail of what it would be like day to day trying to keep tabs in a pandemic um, when I don't think anyone really thought about testing had been quite as it's been for this pandemic, it's not obvious. It, you know, it's not a disease like, um, say, measles, when someone really knows they've got it. Um, a lot of people are infected asymptomatically, um, and there are other diseases which look like COVID. So you've got to have testing, but testing capacity was extremely limited to start with, uh, and now it's not so much. But we've got other problems with um, types of tests which are um, maybe imperfect sensitivity, to put it mildly. So even understanding surveillance of what the current situation is uh, has been surprisingly complex.
Um, so how do you fit into the effort to fight the pandemic now then? So your role has probably changed since last yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, so certainly my role changed uh, with the role of SPY-M. Um, so of course, as an emergency kicks off, uh, the government group SAGE um, is initiated for that emergency. So SAGE was sort of switched on for COVID. I wasn't running one of the main pandemic models. That was never something I was going to do, but there kept being bits where I could see I could do something. And I think particularly early, it was some of the school's work. Um, I, I joined in on looking at the evidence for what do we know about closing schools? This is this is before we've closed schools. It's what, how much good would it do to close schools in the case of COVID? What can we extrapolate from flu to tell us about what would happen with COVID if we close schools? Would it help or would it not? Or would it only be really marginal? We'd guessed at that time that closing schools would do immense harm to children already. And now the evidence for that is much clearer. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> the next phase I'm in is can we reopen schools? So it became a topic that I could see I could do something with pulling together evidence and um, running very simple models. And um, a little bit corralling the evidence from different groups, so pulling together and synthesising things. Um, became a niche where I could see that I could fit in and do something useful. Now, you also got asked to participate in SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. How did that come about? So, uh, I don't honestly understand the algorithm for who um, is participating on SAGE or not, but um, pretty early on, it, I was um, called in to participate in SAGE as well. So that was interesting. Um, starting to get a glimpse. I mean, all I'd seen up to then was what happens in SPY-M. All the model is there. I can see that asks come in from SAGE to SPY-M. There's weekly routine things like what, what is our estimate of R in different parts of the UK, for example, or what's the growth rate in different parts of the UK. And then there'd be these specific asks, um, questions that come in and say, for example, the schools one. So can you um, pull together the evidence for what would be the effect of closing schools or what would be the uh, risks of opening them now partially or completely? Um, sort of homework questions, if you like. So it's not the case that we just inspire and go off and think about whatever we feel like. well as academics we go off and think about what we feel like but within our roles in SPY-M we're usually addressing particular questions and then when I got to see what SAGE was doing I could see a little bit more of where those questions were coming from because SAGE pulls together the scientific expertise not just modelers modelers are a small part of it um it may be an important part for this pandemic but only part of the picture and you've got all the different disciplines and um, different groups or connecting in with the scientific evidence and all of that um, my simple way of seeing is it basically sage is going there to give input and advice um, to things like our chief scientific advisor patrick valance and our chief medical officers so they've got the best evidence at their fingertips when did you start participating in sage was that Uh, in March, actually. Right, so very early yeah. And uh, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, I remember the first first time going there and thinking, I have, like, how can I possibly contribute to this? And um, being a bit stunned by um, everything flying past quickly from all different 
dimensions that you don't think about as a modeler. Like what, for example, like what kind of things did, what dimensions did fly at you? Oh, all kinds of things. Things some more operational things like the, the, you know, the current state of testing or the current state of NHS. But actually one, one that stayed with me throughout and is definitely going to shape my research in future is the other spy group, Spy B. And the B stands for behavioral sciences. So, you know, M comes, if you like, from, from the mathematical discipline. B comes from um, the social sciences. And yes, we, we overlap and work together sometimes, but not really as much as we should. Suddenly realize we're trying to think about the same questions and maybe our modeling is not so different to what they're doing and trying to translate, you know, very complex pictures and extract the key thing. It's the same. Uh -huh. So working with the researchers on Spy B um, has been an absolute eye opener. And I really hope those collaborations are going to persist long past this pandemic. So is there a particular aspect that you can pull out of that collaboration? Um, something that you both think about? Yeah. So, uh, The, the key repeated thing is adherence, right? So you're modeling COVID, it's not like um, modeling a plant disease where, you, you know, you, the plants, they stay where you put them, you give them treatments, you want to cull them, whatever. COVID is about a human population that has to make lots of decisions for itself and may or may not do what it is told to do or supposed to do. And we interact in really complex ways modeling of course we don't just we can't just model here's what people should do it's locked down so they all definitely stay at home or they're told to tell the truth to test and trace so they tell the truth to test and trace we've got to try and uh, actually model and simulate the reality of what is happening and what could happen right and understanding that is 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 straight behavioral science to understand um things like adherence and then to understand some of the details of that and really gain um, more, more appreciation for the, the subtleties there. Um, yeah. For example, um, reporting contacts to test and trace. It's not just that people lie or people forget. It's not as simple as that, is it? If you report someone and it's one of your friends and they've, they, they're only going to earn money if they're in work, they're in, a, they're in a job where they've got to be there, are you going to do it? I'm thinking about what the barriers are to these things and maybe... A little bit with the modeling, having an eye to, is there another way of doing it which would gain better adherence? And with everything we're doing, I'm glancing at my other screen because it was modeling I was doing this morning, you've always got to look at sensitivity to adherence. What if other people change their patterns in response to this change? Does it vastly overwhelm any benefits of this change? If, if so, go and think again. Yeah, so this is something that you 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 will try to take account of in modeling then? Yes, yeah, so, so modeling wise, I'm not going to try and predict exactly what people do, but what I've gained is an awareness that it's complicated and it may not be exactly as last time because maybe messages have changed with vaccination, for example. So I'll have to have a variable in there which scales from naught to one according to here's what everyone else does and just to show whether the main results would stay the same as you vary that, or if they're very sensitive to that, in which case we'd need to think very carefully about.
Now, going back to the beginning of the pandemic, you already had a day job, right? You're, you're a professor at the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge, and you're a fellow of Queen's College at Cambridge. And apart from your own research, these roles come with responsibilities such as lecturing students and administrational tasks and so on. How did you combine this day job with the new enormous task of dealing with the pandemic? Come February, actually, I, I could, if I had my diary, I could probably put a date on it of just the realisation um, that something, well, I, I realised something very big was happening whether it was, this was the one that the pandemic that's the horror that we have to deal with once in our career or, or in, our, in our lifetimes rather um or not was not clear but remember it was a evening i'd gone to dinner with a few colleagues it was just a small gathering i think about four or five six of us after dinner i was talking through saying some of the stuff i was doing for spy m for the next week saying but I had, you know I had to go back that night and finish my marking pile for my supervision the next day uh, and I was worrying about this and I had to prepare this paper for admissions committee and all of my colleagues there were amazing they said stop Julius just just engage brain for a moment what are you doing do you think that someone else could cover your supervisions and you get into a loop don't you when you think I have to do this I have to do this I have to do that And that they sort of more or less, you know, shook me by the shoulder and said, stop and think, can someone else cover this? Can, is this, is this the best arrangement of you trying to do everything half doing it? Um, I'm so lucky to have colleagues that would do that. Mm. Um, and then um, Department of Health wrote a, a colleague in Department of Health wrote a nice letter saying, please, can I be seconded full time in light of COVID-19? Um, Queen's College released me immediately. Um, three colleagues picked up and covered direction of studies for me. And um, Damped also released me immediately. I'd actually finished lecturing for the year, so it wasn't too complex an ask. Now, apart from the bit of lecturing that you did last term, effectively last summer, you found yourself in a position where you were doing full-time work for the government while being paid by the University of Cambridge. And you were not the only person to find yourself in such a situation. Many of the other members of SPYM and other modelers were in the same place. So you pulled together a consortium, didn't you, which goes by the lovely acronym of JUNIPER which stands for the Joint Universities Pandemic and Epidemiological Research, I think, and which comprises academics from seven universities. So the universities of Cambridge, Warwick, Bristol, Exeter, Oxford, Manchester, and Lancaster. And initially the aim of Juniper was just to apply for some funding to underwrite your position working full-time for the government. And we're very pleased about Juniper having come into existence because We now officially work with you to disseminate your work for, to a wider audience. But also Juniper has grown into much, much more than just a sort of funding vehicle, hasn't it? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The thing is, when we started to pull it together, it, it rapidly became more than just this would be a convenient consortium for applying for funding together. 
to make sure we're underwritten to continue our government work. So you start putting it together, think, well, hang on, if we're all working together, we could dot, dot, dot. And then start to think of things, well, hang on, oh, we're, we're actually, all these different research groups, we're repeating some of the same work. For example, when we get new types of data, we have to unpack it, explore what's there. Um, just data crunching rather than repeat that. Can we just pool our resources there and do that one together? And then we can see more and more topics that emerged as things we'd been working on that actually, actually it might be more natural to work on these and have working groups on, on these topics uh, group by group. We can have meetings on a regular basis to have updates outside of SPIM, sort of maybe more um, academically focused, maybe bringing in other topics that we can see are a little bit more forward looking. As I mentioned with SPIM, we tend to be chasing our tails to do this week's homework ask. And actually as academic modelers, we can see on the horizon, there's this topic which is gonna be three or four months away, but it's really important, but we're gonna to have to start working on it now. We could start have that forward scanning um, process with Juniper. Um, I can already see how brilliantly Juniper's working together, how many things are emerging, how many collaborations are emerging and what a great supportive group it is. And, you know, it's really turbocharged what we're doing. It's absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, Do you want to give some quick examples perhaps? So one example is um, new variant. This is something where you can't do horizon scanning. It sort of hit us pretty quick, but um, there we got the data together and rather than just being overwhelmed by it, we pulled together a Juniper group, which is basically all of us uh, over the course of uh, about 48 hours, um, not long before Christmas to analyze the new variant data, present it, look at what we've have uh, and put that together. And that's something that no individual group, I think, could have faced um, tackling the scale of that. But sort of pulling that together with all of us working um, some quite long hours and sort of pulling that analysis together using Slack and working online. Mm -hmm. um, that's something which would not have happened otherwise. And I think actually you can um, see that our, our slides from those dates are on the Sage repository now. So that's out there. Right. I think. I'm, I'm going to give a short talk as part of our Juniper Day in, in a couple of weeks' time. And what I'll be talking about there is some of our work on vaccine escape. It's more topical than we wanted it to be. But there, there are questions about um, what's optimal strategy longer term if you want to be really careful that you're not going to uh, encourage creation or selection of a vaccine, a further vaccine escape mutant in future. So obviously, the more infections you've got, the more lottery tickets you're buying. Um, but also if you've got imperfect vaccination, perhaps you've created a situation that will select for a vaccine escape. So maybe the optimal thing in terms of bringing cases down in a steady way might also be the worst thing you can do for vaccine escape if you do it incorrectly. For example, if you vaccinate only the vulnerable and then you let the virus riot, in fact, that's a perfect way to create a vaccine escape if you think about it. that on the whole the things you come up with are taken on board that's a hard one to answer because 
Um, I wouldn't want them to be the only thing, right? Because sometimes we're asked a specific, it, the questions we're asked are not in the form of, should we open schools or not? That's not what we're asked because we shouldn't be asked that. We're asked things like, um, what will happen to R if we open schools? And this is a different question, right? Because um, there's got to be so many other things brought into balance there. For example, with schools, of course, the harms that happen to children if they're kept at home, as opposed to getting on with their education and lives at school. And it's not for us to balance that. Um, and very topical now is, of course, we can we see a glimmer of light with R clearly below one, negative growth rates, fantastic. We can open something, but, but only something, not everything. And that's choosing which of the things, whether we're going to talk about education, uh, whether we need to um, get more retail or um, hospitality sector open, more people back in the workplace, which of those priorities that should never be down to a mathematical modeler to say, I plugged it into my equations and here's the answer. That's, that's, these are complex um, ethical and social judgments to be made. And they bring into account all kinds of things which are beyond just thinking about COVID or not, right? Mm. So, but do you- I've dodged your question, sorry. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, so as like you personally, or even as a group, like say within Juniper, do you not get sidetracked into going, no, I think schools should remain shut. And no, I think, and like, do you end mm. up arguing about policy rather than- Oh, that's very, okay. No, that, no, that is <laughs> not sidetracked. Okay, so we're all human beings, as you know, none of us are robots. We're all people living through this pandemic. We've all got family members or even ourselves that have been directly affected by a pandemic. We all know children, or well, many members of Juniper have school-aged children, right? So it's very, we can't be 100% robotic and independent about this. And of course, we've got opinions on what we think um, our government should be doing or not doing, right? And we have to be really, really careful about that. We have to, um, make sure we're not skewing anything we're doing and that we're saying, okay, if you put these in assumptions in, this is what you're gonna get out. We have to be crystal clear on what we've done and it's not just expressing our opinion in some coded way. So far, um, what has been the most rewarding, interesting part? I mean, that could be a part piece of mathematics, but it could also be an interaction or an impact. Is there anything you would pick out that stands out in a positive way? There's lots of silver linings and lots of highlights. I mean, the whole thing is pretty, pretty dark and none of us wanted this to happen. But for me, the... You probably sense this already. The the number one positive for me is the people I've met and have been working with, and both, well, <laughs> several different groups. So, so the other discipline, scientific disciplines we've talked about, like the behavioural scientists, um, the other modellers. So a lot of the modellers, in especially the senior modellers in Juniper, I've, I've known for a long time, and many of us have overlapped in research groups in the past. But maybe we don't work together in the same way that you would if you sort of were in the same research group as someone. And now we do again, it's an absolute joy. It's such a nice group. And 
the third group that uh, has, I didn't expect so much, are the civil servants, actually. So particularly within Department of Health, um, there's the squad who look after SPY-M. And to be honest, um, I knew nothing at all, nothing about how government worked really um, before this started. And to understand how we as academics interface and do something useful with that, that's really needed um, the civil servants within Department of Health steering us through that. But that goes both ways because it becomes clear sometimes they have literally no idea how universities and academics work. And it's quite an odd relationship because we are, as mentioned, fully independent. We can literally say, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that this week and walk away. And there is no comeback. So, it's, you know, for them, it must be worse than herding cats. And for us, it's throwing things into mystery black box. <laughs> so... <laughs> working with them to try and find the intersection between what's valuable and useful for governments mm. and what's actually doable by us and looking for that intersection and making sure it happens in a timely, also the timescales, right? You know, I'm a mathematician, you know, normally given a project if I'm doing it in six months time, that's fast. <laughs> but no, no, this, this one is at six hours time, please. you summarize your experience your personal experience over the last year we are simultaneously we are part of what's happening in the country at the same time right so um some of us have been ill ourselves with covid some of us have had family members who've been ill we've all been hit by restrictions and tears and lockdowns um so it's 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 really you know, really odd when you're sitting there talking about a lockdown and you're struggling because you're sitting there yourself in a lockdown. So that sort of, yeah, the personal experience and the, and the population experience are weirdly tied up in this job and this crisis. Thanks very much for talking to us, Julia. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. it for this episode of On the Mathematical Frontline from the PLUS podcast. You can find out more about Julia's work and about the work of other members of Juniper at plus.maths.org. Thanks for listening and bye bye for now. Mm-hmm.